Good morning, brothers and sisters. In the path of those who have gone before, the exhortation for today is comes partly from First uh, Kings twenty um, verses thirty-nine and forty. Sorry to disappoint Lee this morning. First <laughs> um, Kings twenty verse forty. And as I servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The t- text is part of a little parable spoken by an unnamed prophet to King Ahab. First Kings twenty verses thirty-nine and forty. And as I king passed by, he cried into the king and said, The servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me and said, Keep this man, if by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be, thyself hast decided it. The servant had been given a man to keep, and the servant had lost a man, and he had lost him because he was too busy to keep him. I guess the servant thought that was an excuse. If he had been idle, then the loss of the man would have been worse. If we had entrusted millions to someone and they lost it, wouldn't we find it a poor excuse that he had been busy picking up the pennies which he had dropped? Let's leave King Ahab and the nameless prophet and come to ourselves for an application. It's an easy application to make because we also have been given a man to keep and the biggest danger is that we will lose the man just because we are too busy to keep him. The battle is the battle of life, the man is ourself, and the loss comes from our modern life. There are so many distractions and things that we have to get done that we can easily lose the man that we've been entrusted with. Never in the history of the world was the battle has the battle been so difficult as now. We are so busy about the wrong things, and we feel like we have to keep up with the rush or be trampled under. A famous cartoonist once drew a caricature of himself in which he represented himself walking on a treadmill. Behind him were sharp spikes which didn't allow him to stop. Before him hung a dollar bill, The goal of this man was never reached, and it's a good picture of us. The man given us to keep is the man that each of us calls myself. When the battle is over and the treadmill ceases, when we are lifted from the wheel and another takes our place, to be in turn worn out and cast aside, the one thing we will be accountable for is the man who has given us to keep. We won't be asked, what money did you gather? We won't be asked, what fame did you achieve? And we won't be asked, what space did you hold in the social circles? We will be asked, what man are you? And we can't say, Lord, as thy servant was busy here and there, the man or the woman thou gavest me was gone. We can't accuse ourselves of idleness, but we may have been busy about the wrong thing. We may have been given a man to keep, and if we have lost him, all our achievements, however great they are, are worse than useless. For what, shall a man prof- for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The man given us to keep has a nature capable of love and friendship. What have we done with him? Have we taught him to live greatly? Have we made him a wise man or a fool? Have you noticed that the man that Jesus called a fool was a success- successful man as the world counts success? 
He was a man who had much goods, enough money for years laid up, but he was a fool because he invited his soul to live on these things. There's another sense in which we may lose the man given us to keep. We may teach him to enter, center his life energies on himself and so make of him a pagan. But the religion which Christ says to be pure is to visit the fathers and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now we turn to our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 6, and we find that we also have a responsibility to others. I'm not a salesman, but I can tell you that what the secret is to any marketing effort. The secret is to sell solutions, not products. The key to successful marketing is to find a fast solution to a problem or create a problem if none exists and then get someone to buy into your solution. To be attractive, a solution has to do five things. Save money, save time, save effort, avoid pain, and increase success. The people that market products have this system down pat. Instead of telling about the metal alloys, the glass, and plastic that are put together to create the latest automobile, the manufacturer tells us a tale of mystery or attraction of the opposite sex or adventure or power things that people like, saying that you can have these things today if you buy their car right now. We like solutions. We like other people to give us a quick way to solve our problems, and we don't care much, we don't care much what the solution involves as long as the problem gets solved quickly and easily. This may be a good way to market products, but it's a bad way to grow as a believer in Christ. And that's what Paul addresses with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He deals with it in two ways, two examples of what we shouldn't do to solve our problems. The first is found in verses 1 through 8 and involves letting the world solve relationship problems. The second is in verses 9 through 20, and involves letting the world solve personal problems. We could also call them external shortcuts and internal shortcuts. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? What was happening here was that the well-to-do Christians were having property or business disputes with one another and suing each other in the secular court system. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Paul's trying to get these people to think on a broader scale. They're all caught up in their dispute instead of realizing that their true purpose is so much higher and so much more important than arguing over someone's property line. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said he wasn't willing to shame, wasn't writing to shame the Corinthians, but to warn them. But here in chapter 6, Paul means to shame them. We have a job to do, bring the 
love and salvation of Christ to the world, our job is not to see that every wrong we suffer, imagined or real, be redressed no matter what. The Corinthians had to focus on the wrong place, on themselves instead of the possible new converts around them. It's a battle, but Paul says in that battle, this kind of behavior spells defeat. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this for your brother, to your brothers. Outsiders see this kind of behavior, and they say, what, this isn't any different than what I live in now. Why should I even consider Jesus Christ? Success for us isn't measured in terms of what we can see, but in terms of what God sees. My judge, says Paul, is not man or even myself, but God. And how will God judge Paul? He said it in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 4 at verse, verses 1 through, 1 through 2. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In other words, the important thing for us is to be faithful, faithful to God and to the work he has entrusted to us. Notice the word Paul uses, we are servants of Christ, entrusted with the message of, of salvation and given a trust. God has given us all a trust. The most basic one is to share the truth with those around us. All of us have different talents. Some are called to be pastors, some teachers, some evangelists, but whatever it is, it's God's work and we are his servants. The world thinks of success differently. Being faithful isn't the key to a successful life in the world's, world's eyes, but it is in the eyes of God. Most of the disciples of Christ died as criminals. Hebrews eleven thirty six and 37 tells us what happened to many of Christ's followers. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. They suffered because they chose to remain faithful to God's word and God's work. According to the world standards, all of them were complete failures. But Hebrew 11.38, Hebrews 11.38 says the world was not worthy of them. All these people were losers or failures by the world, but they were honored by God because they were faithful to their master. They were faithful servants. They were successful not because of prosperity and power or because of prestige or popularity, but because they were found faithful. They were faithful in obeying his word and doing his work. The focus in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 4 is on ministers of Christ. Some might read that in a way to show their own importance as ministers of Christ, but that wouldn't be in keeping with the context. The key word isn't ministers, the key word is Christ. This is a term of ownership or possession, where Paul is telling who, is, who he answers to. The words stewards of the mysteries of God can be read in different ways. It could be read to show how special someone is who understands the mysteries of God but that would be outside the context. 
And if you put this chapter in, in the context of the three previous chapters, Paul's emphasis is on God and accountability to him. There's no place for emphasis on us. The idea here is that the mysteries belong to God and we are stewards. A steward had to, had to behave carefully. We can see in the parable of the unfaithful steward who was about to be removed from office because of abusing, abusing it and bringing shame to his master and his master's household. His confidence is in God and he knows that he is answerable to God. The steward answered to the master and to no one else. He was exalted or condemned by the master of the household. This is what Paul is saying. In verses 6 and 7 we read, And these things, brethren, I have a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why didst thou glory as if thou hast not received it? What do you have that you didn't receive? What are you that you didn't receive? We all go around in life as if we've really done a lot and contributed a lot. But where does your personality come from? And where do your qualities come from? We received it all from God. In verse 8 we read, Now we are full, now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we might reign with you. In verse 8, the Corinthians had put their focus on themselves and what they thought they could learn, do, and be all by themselves. But they needed to look to God and to draw upon him. It was all about God and what he had in mind. That's a difficult idea for people then and now. We're used to being, being the center. And we're used to making the determinations. We're used to telling people what we'll give him and what we're used to telling God what we'll give him and what will not. It's tough for us to accept that he has the right to tell us. We don't like that very much, but it's still true. Paul tells the slaves what their responsibility is. First, there is a requirement of obedience. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. The Greek word translated obey is actually a combination of the Greek words for listen and under. It means to get under the authority of your master and listen to what he tells you to do. Considering the working conditions of slaves in those days, that was a strong statement. Hearing those words, someone might have said, Paul, whose side are you on? Think of how these words must have sounded to a slave who was being mistreated and abused. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. The first obligation we have is to please God and be a faithful testimony to him. One way to do this, Paul says, is to give willing obedience to those who you, you work for, regardless of who they are or what their character is like. We aren't to obey when we feel like it or when our employers are fair and reasonable. We are to obey in everything and at all times, with the only exception being when we're told to do something that, oppo that is opposed to God's word. We're not free to pick and choose only those things that please us. We may not agree with them. We may not always like what they ask. We may reach a point where we think the situation is unbearable and we need to quit and look for something else. 
But as long as we're employed, we should do what we're told and work the, to the best of our ability. If you think you have problems, imagine being a slave in the first century. Think about the cruel masters the, the believing slaves had to serve. And Paul still said, obey in everything. No restrictions were applied to this obedience or any fine print. He didn't say, do what you have been assigned if it makes sense to you or gives you a sense of satisfaction. What he said was, do what you're told. Peter was even more straightforward about it. He said, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. The application for us today is that we are to be obedient, hardworking employees, even if our employer is unreasonable. It's interesting that Paul was also concerned about the opposite situation. What if your boss was a believer? Paul was afraid that believers might think that if they worked for a brother, they didn't need to be as careful and responsible. Maybe they thought that they should receive better treatment in that situation. But listen to what Paul says. And those who have been believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So whether this boss is kind or cruel, believing or not, we are to be obedient to him because that's God's will. An employer is an employer no matter who he is, and he deserves the best effort in whatever work we do for him. But Paul doesn't stop with the obedience. He has a couple of regulations. The first has to do with our attitude. Slaves are to serve not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. The idea here is that we should do what we're supposed to do all the time, not just when the boss is watching. And we shouldn't try to get by with as little as possible on the job. Our attitude should be one of sincerity. You should want to give your employer the best hour's work you can for an hour's wage. We all know what eye service is like. I remember in gym class in high school, going outside and doing exercises to start the period. If the teacher was standing there watching, everyone did pretty much his best. But if the teacher had his back turned or for some reason he wasn't outside, those were the sloppiest exercises you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Why do 10 perfect push-ups if the teacher wasn't even there to see it? And sometimes that attitude carries over into our jobs. If the boss is around, you do your best, but if he's out of the room, who cares? Everybody take a break. Don't work so hard. Take it easy. Paul says that's not the attitude for us to have. A believer doesn't just do the minimum his job requires, much less work only when the supervisor is watching. He shouldn't need to be checked up at all because he's always doing the work to the best of his ability, whether or not anyone is around. And he works just as hard when he's passed over for a raise or a promotion as when he's being considered for them. He does this work with sincerity of heart. In Ephesians, Paul said, for servants to serve with goodwill. In other words, you don't spend your time complaining under your breath the whole time you're working. He says that even more in Titus 2.9, person should obey his employer, not answering back. Some other translations say not being argumentative. Do your job as if you were doing it all for Christ. Why should we work like that? 
Why should we have this kind of attitude about our work? To answer that question, we need to turn over to what Paul wrote to Titus. He said, Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We should remember that how we work in our job reflects on Christ, regardless of who your earthly master is. People aren't going to people aren't going to be inclined to listen to someone who does careless work or is always complaining. What would happen when you start talking to people about the truth? How can you ever hope to share your faith with your boss or another employee if that's the kind of worker you are? The only way we can draw others to Christ is by working in such a way that it shows you're different from the other employees. Our first responsibility is to make the truth attractive to those around us. We are God's representatives. We may be the only representative at our workplace, so it's important that we work in such a way that we're bringing glory to God. Paul put it this way in the letter to the Ephesians, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Our employer may not appreciate or even be aware of the good work we're doing, maybe because he's not paying attention or maybe because someone else is taking the credit for what we're doing. But God knows and God rewards. Nothing we do in his name or for his glory will pass his notice or fail to receive his blessing. Robert Roberts said in The Ways of Providence, in commenting on our second Old Testament reading from yesterday, Jeremiah 45, Do not let us sit down supinely like the Turks and wait for God to do what he will never do. He brings things to a certain point and leaves men to do the rest. God works in his own way and it is for us to find it out. Get into the groove of this and God will work with us and prosper our endeavors if it seems good to him to do so. An enlightened man will not wait until he can do a great thing. If a man waits until he can do a great thing, he will never do anything. Do the little things faithfully and these things may grow to great. Things that are considered great are made up of many littles and the man who scorns the little will never reach the great.